This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start off reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, the 2021 Supreme Court's Jewish Issues, Abortion, Church-State Separation, a Painting Stolen by Nazis, and the Court Itself, by Ron Compeyes, Washington. The Supreme Court opened a new session of cases this week, and an array of them affect Jewish life in the United States. But there is one issue that a range of Jewish groups are keenly interested in that is not on the docket, the court's credibility. A series of bruising confirmation battles in recent years and a pair of recent decisions on Texas's controversial abortion law and on President Biden's proposed moratoriums on evictions in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic have polarized public opinion about the court. In the wake of last year's rush by Republicans to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed as the court's sixth conservative justice following the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there have been calls from left-leaning groups to reconstitute the court by adding more justices. Sensing the growing criticism, several justices, liberal and conservative, have spoken out in recent weeks. Barrett emphasized that justices should not let personal biases influence their decisions. Samuel Alito dismissed claims that the court's conservatives have formed a shadow docket to push decisions through without traditional debate sessions. That has not appeased many Jewish organizations who worry about how erosion of the court's reputation could eventually harm Jews. There will be a time when the court's prestige is necessary to protect individual or group rights or the institutional interests of the country, and the prestige couldn't, uh, shouldn't be squandered, said Mark Stern, general counsel for the centrist American Jewish Committee. He cited as an example Cooper v. Aaron in 1958 when the school board in Little Rock, Arkansas, fearing black anti-black riots, sought to delay the desegregation ordered by the court several years earlier. The court unanimously rejected the school board's bid. Stern noted that at the time, desegregation was unpopular in the South, and President Dwight Eisenhower equivocated about federal inter intervention. What carried the decision was the prestige of the court, he said. Rabbi Jonah Pessner, who directs the reform movement's more progressive religious action center, said recent court decisions have set it on a path toward radical changes, among them severely curtailing the right to an abortion. We are worried about the hyperpolarization of the court and the potential that it is being delegitimized when it is so out of sync with thoughtful consensus issues like access to abortion, Pesner said. Under that cloud, the court's justices will hear a range of impactful cases this fall. Here are the ones that Jews should know about. The threat to Roe v. Wade. The court has agreed to hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization pitting the state of Mississippi, which bans most abortions after 15 weeks, against an abortion clinic. Lower courts, including those known to lean conservative, have upheld the abortion clinic's claim that the law violates the seminal 1973 decision that held, upheld a woman's right to an abortion, Roe v. Wade which held that abortions are legal until the fetus is viable at between 22 to 24 weeks of pregnancy. The National Council of Jewish Women is leading a friend of the court brief on behalf of the clinic with some 50 organizations signed on, 
and the Religious Action Center and Anti-Defamation League have signed on to separate amicus briefs. National Council of Jewish Women has launched an initiative, 73 Forward, referring to the decision's year, that will educate women about abortion and help facilitate access to abortions. It includes a component called Rabbis for Repro, now numbering some 1,500 rabbis to underscore that for many Jews, access to abortion is a religious imperative. We are deeply concerned about laws that would severely limit access to abortion, Pestner said. He said the laws particularly afflict segments of the population that do not have access to private care or the means to travel to states with more liberal laws. Jody Robin, National Council of Jewish Women's Chief Policy Officer, said that by taking up the case, the court is signaling it wants to revisit Roe v. Wade, even though the Supreme Court does not usually take up cases that are not in dispute in the lower courts. It's been in front of the court for some time, but only after Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed did the Supreme Court decide to take up this case, she said. There was no reason to take up this case. There was no discrepancy in the lower courts. Another ominous sign for abortion rights advocates is that the court recently let stand without hearing a Texas law that allows civilians to sue anyone who facilitates an abortion, although multiple experts said the Texas law was unconstitutional. A federal judge temporarily blocked Texas's enforcement of the law on Wednesday, siding with the Biden's Justice Department, which had filed an emergency request. The Pissarro Painting's Rightful Place In Kassirer v. Thyssen Born Messia Foundation, the descendants of a Jewish woman forced to give up a Camille Pissarro painting to Nazis for her freedom are seeking its restitution from its current owner, a state-owned museum in Madrid. The case hinges on whether California or Spanish law applies here. Spanish law allows an owner to retain stolen property if there was no reason at the time of purchase to believe it was stolen and if no one comes forward to claim it within a given period of time. In the U.S., by contrast, there is no time limit for the original owner to reclaim stolen property. Stern said the AJC is considering an amicus brief in part because he would like the court to consider an issue narrower than the thorny one of whether Spanish law supersedes U.S. law if the museum is lying. Stern does not believe the museum carried out due diligence when it acquired the painting in 1999 and may not be entitled to the painting even under Spanish law. He could write a brief like no literate person could believe that this was not stolen, he said. Paying for religious schools. Accepting a case involving the separation of church and state is the one sure way to get dueling Jewish amicus briefs before the Supreme Court. Carson versus Macon fits the bill. In Maine, some parents want to use state funds to send their children to religious schools. Maine and Vermont are the only two states that allow parents of children in rural districts without a high school to opt out of sending their kids to a neighboring district's public school. Instead, they can use state funds to send them to an in-district private school unless that private school is religious. The parents in Carson versus Macon say that this ban is unconstitutional. The Orthodox Union has filed an amicus brief on behalf of the complainant parents and the Anti-Defamation League is set to file an amicus brief on an amicus brief on behalf of the state of Maine. 
Steve Freeman, the ADL's Vice President of Civil Rights and Director of Legal Affairs, said that the court precedent allows public money to be spent on religious schools as long as it did not involve religious instruction. For instance, in the use of funds for a playground. He said the ADL in its amicus brief will join arguments that public money should not fund indoctrination in a faith. Nathan Diamant, the Orthodox Union's Washington director, said that the distinction that the ADL is hoping the court will uphold may be impossible to make. There is little that a religious institution instructs that is not founded in religious beliefs, even if the topic is ostensibly secular, he said. Additionally, he said it's too late to stop public funding for religious institutions, noting as an example the decision last year to lend pandemic aid to religious institutions which had bipartisan support. The American Jewish Committee, once a reliable partner to the ADL and other Jewish civil rights groups in defending the separation of church and state, will not be weighing in, Stern said. There's been a disposition within the agency to re-examine our position on aid to parochial schools, he said. The case of the Christian flag. The ADL and the American Jewish Committee are both considering whether to weigh in on Boston's rejection of a Christian group's request to fly a Christian flag outside City Hall, a case known as Shirtleff versus Boston. The Christian group sued on free speech grounds because the city makes the flagpole available to local groups for a limited period of time. Excluding a religious group is discriminatory, the group argues. The ADL's Freeman said the case is a slam-dunk kind of question that flying a religious flag in front of City Hall is not consistent with what the framers had in mind when they adopted the First Amendment. The AJC Stern said a case could be made that flying a religious flag on public grounds amounts to an endorsement of faith, but he was also concerned that precedent might not be on the side of church-state separationists. Courts have for decades upheld the rights of Jewish groups, most frequently the Chabad Lubavitch movement, to position menorahs on public property during Hanukkah. Heating the Kids from Parkland in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, a gun group is joining two individuals challenging a New York State law that only grants permits to carry concealed handguns outside the home if someone can show proper cause for a need for self-defense. The reform movement's Pestner said his group has joined an amicus brief in part because younger reform Jews have made gun control a focus since the deadly 2018 shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida. There were a number of Jewish victims killed in the attack, and local Jews in response took up gun reform advocacy through reform-affiliated groups. That advocacy was in part also motivated by racial equity, said Pesner. Our young group in Parkland said they, witness, they say they witnessed a horrific tragedy, but that event takes place every day in cities like Washington, D.C., and Chicago and does not get the same attention. The case of the community college crank. In Houston Community College System versus Wilson, a former member of a community college's board of trustees sued the board for passing a resolution censuring him for his relentless opposition to the board's agenda. He allegedly leaked confidential information, filed lawsuits against the system, and trolled the other members' constituents with robocalls. 
Wilson said the censure violated his right to free speech. A lower court said that the censure amounted to little more than a statement and throughout the case. Then an appeals court reinstated it. So why is this the single case so far that the AJC is addressing in an amicus brief? Stern said a ruling upholding Wilson's claim that the community college board limited his free speech could have dire circumstances for Jewish groups that call out instances of anti-Semitism. Government officials should have the freedom to call people out for bad behavior without being sued, he argued, and also linked it to the AJC's efforts to get governments to embrace the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. If every time a government official called out anti-Semitism, he's guilty of infringing free speech, that would be a severe setback, Stern said. Upholding the right of the undocumented to a hearing. The court is hearing two cases, Garland v. Gonzalez and Johnson v. Ortega Martinez, in which undocumented migrants in detention who face dangers if they are deported to their homeland argue that they are entitled to a hearing after six months to determine whether they are eligible to be released on bond. Highest, the lead Jewish immigration advocacy group, is tracking the cases closely in part because the Supreme Court has leaned in favor of continued detention in recent cases, said Andrew Geibel, the group's policy counselor. Geibel said the detainees are susceptible to COVID infection, are suffering mental health privations, and are unable to adequately prepare for their defense while in detention. Next from JTA, Neil Scherr, Nazi hunter and former APAC director, dies at 74 by Ron Compeyes. Neil Scherr, who as the U.S.'s chief Nazi hunter established the formula that led to the deportation of dozens of Nazis, has died at 74. Scherr, who led the Justice Department's Office of Special Investigations for 11 years and was for a period the director of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, died Sunday in Manhattan his widow, Bonnie Kagan, said in an email to friends. Darkly handsome, dapper, and intense, Cher cut a dashing figure throughout the 1980s. At press conferences, he would unveil the discovery of monsters disguised as working men living contented lives in American suburbia. But behind the drama, there was hard work in a formula crafted by Cher during his years at the OSI, first as a litigator when he joined in 1979, year it was established, and then as its director from 1983 to 1994. He transformed the Justice Department's Nazi hunting system from one that had relied on tips, which were not always reliable, to one which systematically checked Nazi-era German records against U.S. immigration records. Under his system, the office has, since 1979, removed 69 former Nazis, in most cases revoking their citizenship for lying about their Nazi past when immigrating to the United States. A number of them killed themselves as the feds were closing in, some spectacularly. In one explosive episode, Scheer, citing evidence that former UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim had not disclosed his past as a Nazi officer, got the U.S. government to ban his entry to the United States. Scher's doggedness led to the uh, discovery not just of Nazi cogs, but of major figures, among them Archbishop Valerian Trifa, who had instigated a pogrom against Bucharest's Jews, 
had Arthur Rudolph, the Nazi scientist deported to Germany after Scher showed that he had directed a German wartime factory where he worked Jews to death. For these people to live freely in the United States is contrary to everything this country stands for, he told CBS in 1983. There were occasional flubs. The OSI's efforts led uh, to the extradition in 1986 of Nazi camp guard John Demyanyuk to Israel. The OSI identified Demyanyuk as Ivan the Terrible, the mass murderer at Sobibor, and it was for those crimes Demyanyuk was sentenced to death in an Israeli court. Israeli appeals court in 1983 established that Demyanyuk was not Ivan and returned him to the United States, where a U.S. court chastised the OSI for withholding exculpatory information. The OSI continued to pursue the case, noting the overwhelming evidence that Demyanyuk was a lower-level camp guard implicated in the murder of thousands, and he was deported to Germany in 2009, where he was tried and convicted, and where he died in 2012. Scher's relentlessness infuriated the leaders of Ukrainian, Polish, and Romanian communities in the United States who said that the old men should be left alone decades after their crime, sometimes claiming that some of the evidence against the former Nazis was tainted because it was gathered in the former Soviet Union. Scher rejected those objections. There's no statute of limitations for mass murder, Scher said on CBS. Scher became APAC's executive director in 1994, but lasted in the job only two years. Both sides said it was not a good fit. An APAC insider at the time told Jewish Telegraphic agencies that Scher was not able to bring the passion he showed for hunting down Nazis to defending Israel. Scher was silent at the time, but in a 2007 op-ed for JTA, he described underlings as maneuvering around him to position APAC as confrontational with the Clinton administration pushing through a Jerusalem-related bill that both the U.S. and Israeli governments opposed. We mourn the passing of Neil Scher, who led a life dedicated to the pursuit of justice and the defense of the Jewish people, APAC said Thursday in a statement. In 1998, Scher became the first chief of staff for the International Commission on Holocaust-Era Insurance Claims, the body established to extract claims that insurance companies had resisted disbursing to the survivors of clients murdered in the Holocaust. He was forced to resign in 2002 after the Baltimore Sun exposed him for filing more than $100,000 in false expenses. He repaid the fees, was disbarred in Washington, D.C., and was suspended by the New York Bar. He had at least one more win up his sleeve. His New York bar status restored, he went to bat as legal representation for the families of victims of a 2009 terrorist shooting at Fort Hood, Texas. The army characterized the killings carried out by a psychiatrist who became an Islamist as workplace killings. Scher's relentless advocacy led Congress to pass legislation in 2015 that allowed the Purple Heart to be awarded to 13 people killed and the more than 30 wounded in the attack. Next from JTA, Gavin Newsom launches Council to Boost California Holocaust Education by Shira Hanau. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced the formation of a Council on Holocaust and Genocide Education Wednesday at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. The Council will provide educational resources regarding the Holocaust and other instances of genocide to students at California schools and provide young people with the tools necessary to recognize and respond to on-campus instances of anti-Semitism and bigotry 
according to the governor's office. We find ourselves in a moment of history where hate pervades the public discourse, Newsom said. National surveys have indicated a shocking decline in awareness among young people about the Holocaust and other acts of genocide. In the 2021 state budget, California allocated $10 million to the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, as well as $2.5 million for an expansion of the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles. It also allocated $1 million for the renovation of the Tauber Holocaust Library and Archives at the Jewish Family and Children's Services Holocaust Center in San Francisco. For Orthodox Jews and Israelis, WhatsApp outage highlighted basic community infrastructure and its vulnerability by Julia Gergely and Shira Hanau. Asher Lovi was expecting a flood of uh, notifications on Monday morning when he posted information about a sexual abuse case to several WhatsApp chat groups devoted to tracking the work of his organization, which provides support to survivors of sexual abuse within the Orthodox community. Instead, he heard nothing. WhatsApp, the Facebook-owned messaging app he uses, was down along with Facebook and Instagram, three of the most widely used social platforms in the world. I was worried that people who were trying to reach us wouldn't be able to, Lovey said. He began to worry about what would happen if the outage extended later into the week when Za'aka would ready its mental health hotline for Orthodox Jews who have, ha who have crises on Shabbat when many other services are closed or inaccessible. We have people contacting us on WhatsApp to get referrals for resources for therapists or lawyers or just talk and receive support, he said. I get texts at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning from people in crisis who need support or resources. Who do they reach out to if not us? The thought of WhatsApp going down on Shabbos is terrifying. Lovey's fears did not come to pass. WhatsApp was back up after eight hours, along with Facebook and Instagram, but the outage, which Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said was the most significant interruption in service in years, brought into sharp focus the degree to which WhatsApp is baked into the communication infrastructure for most of the world's Jews and how vulnerable that infrastructure may be. With more than 2 billion users worldwide, WhatsApp is by far the most widely used instant messaging service in the world. Its simple platform, which works even on older flip phones, is the communication standard in many countries in Africa and the Middle East, and its early uh, adoption in Israel and the relative unpopularity of iPhones there means it remains the country's text messaging app of choice. Even in the United States, its dominance is perhaps most clear in the Haredi Orthodox world. Even as Orthodox rabbis were warning about the dangers to religious life posed by WhatsApp way back in 2014, as Facebook began to consider acquiring the platform, the app became popular in Orthodox communities as an easy way to communicate. The rabbis overseeing divorces say WhatsApp is the number one cause of destruction of Jewish homes and businesses, the Hasidic newspaper Der Blatt reported in Yiddish that year. Its dominance in the communities only increased over time, with misinformation and anti-mask activism spreading quickly through group text channels that were already well established before the pandemic. It's not just rumors that take hold on orthodox WhatsApp chats. We run all our groups of employees on various businesses through WhatsApp, said Morty Getz, a community leader who owns a health clinic and Judaica store in Borough Park, Brooklyn. 
A unique confluence of factors drives the penetration and lasting power of WhatsApp in Orthodox communities. Many community members have filters on their phones to prevent them from accessing an, uh, external websites and social media platforms, so they receive all their information through WhatsApp, according to Getz. This creates its own problems as misinformation can circulate easily and quickly without the ability to fact check. What's more, WhatsApp's integrated voice notes option, uh, notes option allows people with wide-ranging skills in wit written language to communicate with each other, a potential issue in communities where critics have charged that yeshivas do not always lead graduates with a strong secular education. And WhatsApp video and phone calls don't carry long-distance calling fees for Jewish families in which some members are Orthodox and others are not, or some members live in Israel and others in the diaspora, WhatsApp can serve as a vital convening ground. Every Orthodox Jew has people in Israel and Europe, says, said Getz. You have to have WhatsApp if you want to talk to them. When that stops working, the distance can feel greater. Orly Gal, a Philadelphia nurse, said her family, which includes people in Israel and across the United States, would have been celebrating a milestone in her sister's medical training over WhatsApp Monday when the outage cut off their communications. We've got people all over the world, and some of them are pretty elderly. This is the only way they know how to get in touch, she said. WhatsApp is the only thing that connects us all. Mendel Horowitz, a therapist and teacher in Jerusalem, was suddenly unable to be in touch with his 20-year-old son, Alti, who was vacationing in Egypt's Sinai Desert with friends. I don't want to say I was up all night worried because I wasn't, he said, but it was on our minds that this is the only way to reach him, and we can't. The outage got Horowitz thinking about his own family's reliance on WhatsApp and whether it was wise given the app's vulnerabilities. It's not an emergency, but it gets us thinking about the next time somebody goes somewhere, we should have a plan B, he said. Horowitz wasn't alone. If WhatsApp were to disappear, there would be no backup infrastructure for communication within the Orthodox community, said Lovi. The outage, Gall said, mostly made me rethink why did we allow Facebook to buy it in the first place? Next from JTA, I will protect you. At Jewish Museum, New York Governor Hockel unveils $25 million for nonprofit security by Julia Gergeli. New York City Governor Kathy Hochul announced $25 million in grants to boost security at nonprofits threatened by hate crimes. Speaking at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Lower Manhattan Wednesday, where a Confederate flag was tied to its doors earlier this year, Hakul announced the rollout of a new online hate crime reporting system meant to help the state deploy resources immediately and effectively. You continue to wear that yarmulke every single day and I will protect you, said Hakul. This stops now. We're letting people know that if they dare raise a hand to any New Yorker, they're picking a fight with 20 million others, starting with their governor. The grants are part of the Securing Communities Against Hate Crimes grant program, which solicited grant proposals in spring 2020 from schools, daycare centers, museums, and camps to boost infrastructure and security against hate crimes and hate-related incidents in New York. Hockel said the new funding will support another 800 projects across the state. This year, the NYPD has already reported 371 hate-related incidents in New York City across the Jewish, Asian, Black, and LGBTQ communities. The 
Federal Bureau of Investigation's 2020 hate crime statistics report showed that overall hate crimes were rising and that anti-Semitic hate crimes made up 57% of all religious bias crimes. The Jewish Community Relations Council of New York praised Hockel, saying at long last, hundreds of organizations that submitted grant applications in spring 2020 will have access to funds to upgrade security hardware planning and training. Next from JTA, J Dave Chappelle jokes about world-conquering space Jews in new Netflix special by Gabe Friedman. Dave Chappelle was well aware that his latest Netflix stand-up comedy special was going to bring him a storm of criticism online. That's likely why he starts it by saying that it will be his last stand-up special for a while. In The Closer, released Tuesday, the longtime provocateur crosses lines that for most celebrities lead to pop culture suicide in 2021. He starts by joking about how good he felt while being molested by a preacher as a child. Then he talks about watching videos of black people beating up Asian people during the COVID-19 pandemic while he was quarantining with an asymptomatic case of the virus. Chappelle, who is black, likens the beatings to his body's efforts to beat the virus, effectively comparing Asian people to the coronavirus. Then he turns to Jews, saying UFO videos gave him an idea for a movie. In my movie idea, we find out that these aliens are originally from Earth, that they're from an ancient civilization that achieved interstellar travel and left the Earth thousands of years ago. Some other planet they go to and the things go terrible for them on the other planets, so they come back to Earth and decide that they want to claim the Earth for their very own. It's a pretty good plotline, huh? I call it Space Jews. After the joke gets only a little applause, Chappelle says, all right, it's going to get worse than that. Hang in there. Whether the joke is a Zionist allegory or a bit about world domination, NPR critic Eric Deggins called it anti-Semitic. Chappelle knows reviewers like me will quote the joke and criticize him for it, which I am. I don't really care what point he's trying to make. A joke which sounds like anti-Semitism gets a hard pass for me. Deggins wrote. Chappelle also waded into the debate over transgender rights, defending J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter creator whose reputation took a hit after she challenged widely accepted views about sex, gender, and trans activism last year. The CDC published a study finding that camp during COVID-19 can be safe. It's proof, Camp Ramah, by Gabe Friedman. The Centers for Disease Control has published a study conducted by the Medical Committee of the Camp Ramah Network highlighting the Jewish camp's highly successful safety measures for avoiding the spread of COVID-19 this past summer. Between June and August, nine Ramah campers tested positive for the virus out of a total of over 7,000 children and teenagers at nine out of the conservative movement's affiliated Systems 10 camps, the studies showed. Three of the nine cases occurred in vaccinated staff members and six in unvaccinated campers ages 8 to 14 years. The three staff member cases were identified before the arrival of campers. The study summary reads, COVID-19 vaccines currently are not offered to children under 12. In the words of the 10 Ramah authors, several of them licensed physicians, 
The study's findings highlight important guiding principles for school and youth-based COVID-19 prevention protocols. The authors emphasize that a combination of mandatory testing before attending camp, repeated testing while at camp, frequent hand washing, and the establishment of pods or isolated groups of campers led to a successful summer. Campers in a specific cabin became a pod and were allowed to interact freely without masks or other restrictions. After rounds of testing, multiple pods merged over time. Three camps achieved camp-wide pod expansion. After shutting down completely like most other Jewish and non-Jewish overnight camps during the height of the pandemic in 2020, Ramah restarted this summer. Rabbi Mitchell Cohen, National Director of the National Ramah Commission, described the process, which included rotating groups of campers into prayer sessions and putting up plastic dividers in dining halls to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency in April, calling it absolutely exhausting but incredibly exhilarating. And next from JTA, these Jews want to normalize not circumcising and they want synagogues to help by Ben Harris. When Alana Johnson was shopping for a synagogue three years ago, the mother of four approached a conservative congregation in Lincoln, Nebraska, to ask about joining. For most synagogues, such an inquiry would have been a no-brainer, but Johnson had elected not to circumcise her three sons, departing from one of Judaism's most widely practiced traditions, and she was concerned about whether that would be a problem. Johnson says the synagogue told her she was welcome to enroll her sons, but that without circumcision they would not be allowed to celebrate their bar mitzvah. That decision was in line with a position developed, adopted by the conservative movement's Jewish law authorities in 1981 that recommended including non-circumcising families in synagogue life but denying uncircumcised boys a bar mitzvah. Johnson didn't feel included. Her family joined a nearby Reform Synagogue instead. I want to be more observant and in a more observant community, she said, but I also just want my kids to be happy and welcome and feel as little judgment as possible no matter where we go. A new organization launching this week aims to make that more likely. The group, called Beruchim, Hebrew for welcome, is seeking to normalize the decision not to circumcise Jewish boys venerable religious rite that goes back to the Bible and which is widely practiced across the spectrum of Jewish observance, even by otherwise non-observant Jewish families. Families who are making this decision shouldn't feel marginalized and they shouldn't feel like they have to be secret about it, said Lisa Braver-Moss, Bruchim's co-founder and president. The group is an outgrowth of advocacy that Moss and Bruchim co-founder and executive director Rebecca Wald have been doing for decades. Moss first argued against Jewish circumcision in a 1990 essay, and together they outlined an alternative ceremony, Breach Shalom, literally Covenant of Peace, in a 2015 book distributed, uh, and distributed flyers at that year's Reform Movement Convention, outlining ways for synagogues to be more welcoming for families that had opted out of circumcision. Now in Bruchim, they have a volunteer staff, including Johnson as social media strategi strategist, as well as a four-member rabbinical advisory board. The team includes people with professional backgrounds in all of Judaism's non-Orthodox movements, as well as several people who grew up Orthodox. 
Among its objectives, Brochim wants to see synagogues make proactive statements of welcome for non-circumcising families similar to those that have become common toward Jews of colors and LGBTQ Jews. They also hope rabbis will offer one of several alternative welcome ceremonies for newborns in place of the traditional bris. I see circumcision. It's described as a sign, a sign of the covenant, and there are many options for signs, said Rabbi Elise Wechterman, executive director of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association and a member of Brookings Rabbinic Advisory Board. I actually don't think that it is an option not to bring your child into the covenant. I think you must bring your child into the covenant or you should bring your child into the covenant. I want to push that as an expectation. How it's done, there are many equally valid options. Whether Bruchim's request will find a ready reception within American Jewish communities is uncertain. The reform movement does not have a policy about how to handle families who are considering or have decided not to circumcise. But the movement's leader, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, said in a statement that ritual circumcision remains something his movement will always advocate for even as other choices are accepted. As one of the oldest rituals in the Jewish faith, we will always advocate and educate our community about the beauty and meaning of Brit Milah, Jacob said, but he added, connecting oneself to the Jewish community may take many forms, and we understand that some families and individuals are making the choice not to circumcise as part of the Brit ceremony. There will always be a place for everyone in the Reformed community, regardless of how they or their family choose to express their faith. Rabbi Elliot Dorf, the leading bioethicist in the conservative movement and the chair of its top Jewish law authority, said there's no basis in Jewish law for denying an uncircumcised man access to religious life, including bar mitzvah. But his movement has not made any formal statements since the 1981 opinion taking bar mitzvah off the table for uncircumcised children. And Dorf said that advertising openness to non-circumcising families, one of Bruchim's main asks, is not something that he would endorse. Do I want to say publicly, even though it's certainly true that people who violate Shabbat publicly are welcome in our community, Dorf said, of course they're welcome in our community. But I don't want to say publicly that it's wonderful that you violate Shabbat. One Bay Area conservative rabbi who asked not to be named out of fear he would become the target of hate mail said he has turned away about a half dozen non-circumcising families in 20 years leading his synagogue. It's a, covenantal, it's a covenantal mitzvah, the rabbi said, referring to circumcision. It's the sign of the covenant, which is about as basic to Judaism as you can get. By not circumcising, you're saying that you're outside the covenant of Judaism, and bar mitzvah is saying that you're part of the mitzvah observing community. You're starting with the basic idea that you're not going to observe one of the most fundamental mitzvot, commandments of Judaism. No reliable statistics exist on the percentage of American Jewish men who are circumcised, though the vast majority are believed to be. In part, that's because circumcision is performed on the vast majority of American boys, some 90% of non-Hispanic whites, according to a 2014 study making the U.S. a global outlier on the issue that figure appears to be dropping. Critics of circumcision object to the practice on a number of grounds, including the physical and emotional trauma inflicted on children, a conviction they lack 
the right to modify someone's body without permission and a belief that there is no medical benefit for the child. The position of the American medical establishment is that the benefits of circumcision outweigh, outweigh the risks. The broad societal trend coupled with the fact that 72% of American Jews who married between 2010 and 2020 chose a non-Jewish spouse, according to the 2020 Pew study, means that while the number of Jewish parents who choose to leave their children intact is almost certainly a tiny minority, their numbers are likely to be growing. I looked into the medical reasoning, I thought a lot about the ethics of it all, and my conclusion was, I don't think I feel so good about this, said one Jewish mother who sits on Bruchin's board, but was asked not to be named due to the sensitivity of the subject. Am I the only Jew that doesn't feel so good about this? And I started to realize that I wasn't, but everyone felt the need to be very quiet about it. Some efforts to bar circumcision in San Francisco, where Moss lives and elsewhere, have been criticized as anti-Semitic. Bruchim is limiting involvement to Jews, advertising that anyone who is Jewish may donate and come to meetings in an effort to make parents like the board member feel comfortable discussing their wrestling with tradition. We need almost a safe space to have these conversations without that sort of outside interference where people can be really negative or even hateful or just simply not get it even with the best intentions, said Johnson. It's a conversation that Jewish people should only really be having with other Jewish people. And having Bruchim means that we're able to offer that support and community in a way that has not really existed until this time. And next from JTA, HBO picks up film about boxer who escaped Auschwitz death march by Gabe Friedman. HBO has bought the rights to The Survivor, a film by acclaimed Jewish director Barry Levinson based on the true story of a boxer who escaped an Auschwitz death march after being forced to fight with his fellow prisoners. Jewish actor Ben Foster stars as Harry Haft, a Polish Jew who is imprisoned at the concentration camp at 16, but escaped as the Nazis evacuated the camps ahead of the advancing Red Army. He eventually moved to New York City. There he embarked on a fighting career that found him matched up against the likes of legendary heavyweight Rocky Marciano. The movie, which premiered at this year's Toronto International Film Festival, is based on Harry Haft, survivor of Auschwitz, challenger of Rocky Marciano, a 2006 book written by Haft's son, Alan. HBO Films has not set a release date. Also involved in the production was a team from the University of Southern Chica uh, California Shoah Foundation and Archive of Holocaust Survivor Testimonies, started by Steven Spielberg. The USC team provided detailed historical consulting in addition to access to a testimony of Haft filmed in 20, 2007, according to Deadline. Foster has worked under Levinson before in the film Liberty Heights, tale of black-Jewish relations in 1950s Baltimore. A story about Palestinians won Israel's highest film honor. It stars Skip the Award Show and Protest by Shira Hanau. The award for best feature film at Israel's Ophir Awards, the country's top film honor, and its automatic nominee for the foreign film category at the Oscars, went to Let It Be Morning, a film about an Arab-Israeli man forced to grapple with his identity as both Palestinian and Israeli. 
But most of the Palestinian stars of the film skipped the award ceremony Tuesday night, calling out what they described as appropriation of a Palestinian story. In a normal situation, I would feel happiness and recognition for the prize, but to my dismay, that's not possible when there are efforts being made to wipe out the Palestinian identity and the collective pain that I carry with me is found in every role I play, Juna Suleiman, one of the film's stars, wrote in a statement that was read for her at the ceremony, according to the Times of Israel. Most of the cast also skipped the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in July due to the movie's categorization as an Israeli film rather than a Palestinian one. The story, based on a book by Sayed Kashua, is one of Israel's most prominent uh, one of Israel's most prominent Israeli Arab writers, follows a Palestinian citizen of Israel as he tries to return home to, a, to Jerusalem after visiting the village where he grew up to attend a wedding. When the Israeli army blocks the road back to Jerusalem, the man is forced to remain in the village and grapple with his identity as a Palestinian and citizen of Israel. Directed by Aaron Kurillin, the Jewish-Israeli filmmaker who also made the band's visit, the film won seven Ophir Awards in total, including in the categories of Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Ahab Elias Salami, who won the award for Best Supporting Actor, attended the awards ceremony and used his acceptance speech to speak about peace. I have a dream, and that dream does not harm humanity and does not damage health. It's in two acts. First, the just peace for the Palestinian people. The second act is a calm life, a peaceful life, and a creative life for the citizens of the Israeli state, Salami said to applause from the audience. And next from JTA, Lost Toilets of the First Temple, 2,700-year-old private toilet found in Jerusalem, by Shira Hanan. A 2,700-year-old toilet from the days of the First Temple in Jerusalem has been discovered by Israel's Antiquities Authority. Built as a private toilet stall at a time when few could afford such a luxury, the toilet is set to be unveiled to the public Wednesday at an archaeology conference, though for viewing only. Carved from limestone, the toilet appears much like the modern-day fixture with a hole at the center leading to a septic tank. At the time the ancient toilet was in use, private toilets were the exclusive province of the rich. A private toilet cubicle was very rare in antiquity and only a few were found to date, most of them in the city of David. In fact, only the rich could afford toilets. A thousand years later, the Mishnah and the Talmud raised various criteria that defined a rich person, and Rabbi Yossi suggested that to be rich is to have the toilet next to his table, said Yaakov Billing, who directed the dig for the Israel Antiquities Authority. Archaeologists plan to use the septic tank below the toilet to investigate what people living in the First Temple period might have eaten and to better understand diseases of that time period. The toilet was found on the site of a large estate on the Armon Hanatziv Promenade in Jerusalem. The estate, in which archaeologists also found rare columns and stone capitals as well as evidence of a garden planted with ornamental trees, overlooked the Temple Mount. In Israel, a chicken farm released special edition eggs to mark egg-related Talmud study milestone by Shira Hanau. As participants in the Daf Yomi, a program in which participants study one page of Talmud each day, 
near the end of the current tractate, an Israeli chicken farm decided to join in the celebration. In honor of the completion of the Talmud tractate Beitzah, which means egg in Hebrew, Meshech Kedumim printed the words of the text recited upon the completion of the Talmud tractate directly onto the eggs. We will return to you, tractate Beitzah, the eggs read in Hebrew, be strong and take courage from the chicken coops of Kedumim. Dafyomi participants will complete tractate Beitzah, so named because it begins with a story related to an egg, next week before continuing on to tractate Rosh Hashanah. The entire Dafyomi cycle in which participants study one double-sided page of the 37 tractates of the Talmud each day in order takes about seven and a half years to complete. At the end of the cycle, celebrations are typically held, including a mass gathering at MetLife Stadium. And next from JTA, London lawmakers reject plan for high-rise building next to historic synagogue by Kanan Lipschitz. City council members in London voted against a controversial plan to build a high-rise building near an 18th century synagogue. The plan by developers would have replaced a seven-story building adjacent to the Bevis Mark Synagogue in central London with a 48-story tower. The plan was rejected on Tuesday in a vote, uh, by a vote of 14 to 7, the BBC reported. The custodians of the synagogue, which today serves the Spanish and Portuguese Jewish community of London, argued the envisioned building would block sunlight to the synagogue, though the developers disputed this. As in other large synagogues of communities of Sephardi Jews who left the Iberian Peninsula after the Spanish Inquisition, which began in the 15th century, Bevis Marx depends for lighting on candle and sunlight. We already find it difficult at times to read prayers and carry out a normal service due to poor light conditions, Shalom Morris, a resident rabbi at Bevis Marx, told the BBC. He said he was delighted that the plan was canceled. Several thousand people signed a petition against the plan, including prominent British Jews such as Simon Schama, a renowned historian, author, and television presenter. Saving the light for Bevis Marx is a matter of the deepest historical and cultural significance, the Jewish Chronicle quoted Shama as saying. Scientist David Julius, whose grandparents fled anti-Semitism in Tsarist Russia, wins Nobel Prize in Medicine by Shira Hanau. David Julius, a professor of physiology at the University of California, San Francisco, whose grandparents fled anti-Semitism in Tsarist Russia, was awarded this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine on Monday. He shared the award with Artem Pataputian, a molecular biologist and neuroscience at the Scripps Research Center. The Nobel Prize Committee cited Julius and Pataputian's research for the discoveries of receptors for temperature and touch, which have improved treatments for pain caused by a range of diseases. Julius was born in 1955 and grew up in Brighton Beach, which was then a home to a large population of Russian Jewish emigres. Julius described the neighborhood as a landing pad for Eastern European immigrants like my grandparents, who fled Tsarist Russia and anti-Semitism in pursuit of a better life. A graduate of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of California, Berkeley, Julius has spent his career researching the way human senses like touch, pain, and heat function and has used capsaicin 
the chemical in chili peppers that makes them burn to explore how human nerve endings feel heat. These breakthrough discoveries launched intense research activities leading to a rapid increase in our understanding of how our nervous system senses heat, cold, and mechanical stimuli, the Nobel Peace Committee wrote in its announcement of the winners. Alan Coulter, longtime announcer for David Letterman and a former synagogue president, dies at 78. Alan Coulter, his rabbi said, was a mensch, a past temple president who dutifully zoomed into services throughout the pandemic. Coulter died Monday at 78 at Stanford Hospital in Connecticut, surrounded by his wife and daughters. His colleagues took to social media, remembering him as a lovely man who was generous with his praise and encouragement. That might not be the Alan Coulter you remember. For 20 years on The Late Show with David Letterman, Coulterman was not only Letterman's announcer, but played a foul-mouthed narcissist and buffoon. Letterman, who delighted in getting his staff and guests to play against type, took it to extremes with the affable and self-effacing Coulter, who joined the talk show host in 1995 and stayed through Letterman's retirement from broadcast TV in 2015. A favorite routine was Alan Coulter's celebrity interview. Letterman would introduce Coulter, and the camera would cut to Coulter seated across from an A-list celebrity. George Clooney, Will Smith, Harrison Ford, and Jodie Foster were among those who gamely played along. Instead of interviewing the celebrity, Coulter would spend two minutes abusing Letterman, accusing his boss of sycophantic behavior toward the celebrity. Suckhole is one of the printable pejoratives Coulter, uh, Coulter favored then turning on the guest who reacted only with facial expressions and hardly ever said a word. Calto would rip off his mic and storm off the stage as backstage staffers grinned and applauded. That's the last time we hire a guy without an interview, Letterman said after a session with Nicolas Cage. Calter, born in Brooklyn, taught high school English in Long Island before breaking into radio and becoming a game show announcer. When Letterman was seeking a, pl a replacement for Bill Wendell, his first announcer, the producer brought in an audio tape of auditions. Coulter's was the first and only voice we listened to, Letterman said. Coulter would break into show tunes to Letterman's mortification or would present as a leering predator offering to comfort Britney Spears after her divorce. Another recurring theme was the introduction of Coulter's long-lost son, played by an actor who looked eerily like him, down to the cup of red hair. Coulter at first denies the obvious, for my 18th birthday, my parents gave me a vasectomy, and then cops to it, kind of. How old are you, Coulter asks. 20, Pa, the son says. 20, let's see, 1989, Coulter thinks. Was your mom in the bangles? Letterman, in a statement, recalled Coulter as a game victim of his staff's jokes. Whatever else, we always had the best announcer in television, Letterman told the Associated Press. Wonderful voice and eagerness to play a goofy character of himself. Did I mention he could sing? Yes, he could. He enthusiastically did it all. A very sad day, but many great memories. Letterman's writers lit up social media remembering Coulter, whose name was Big Red because of his hair. We loved writing for him, said Carter Bays on Twitter. Such a cheerful presence on the show and around the office. Rest easy, Big Red. Casey St. Ong, another writer, recalled on Twitter of Coulter, he instituted the policy of saying, I enjoyed that one to me. He made me feel legit. Rabbi Joshua Hammerman of Temple Beth El in Stanford told the congregation in a note obtained by Variety that Coulter was a mensch 
and a past president of the temple who was deeply committed to Jewish values and the Jewish people and was especially devoted to this, his home community. His family asked that instead of flowers, mourners contribute to charities, among others, the temple's mitzvah fund. Over the past year, he attended our daily Zoom minion so religiously that he even joined in from the golf course, Hammerman said. And next, Mark Oppenheimer's new book on the Tree of Life shooting is an ode to an iconic Jewish neighborhood by David Rulo of the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. Mark Oppenheimer's new book, Squirrel Hill, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in the soul of a neighborhood, recounts the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history through interviews with those impacted, both directly and tangentially, by the shooting. While examining the effects of the event on Squirrel Hill, the heavily Jewish neighborhood of Pittsburgh where Tree of Life is located. The author's Pittsburgh Jewish roots go back several generations. His great-great-great-grandfather co-founded the first Jewish burial society in Pittsburgh, and his father grew up on Ellsboro Avenue in the center of Squirrel Hill. In writing his book, Oppenheimer traveled to the city 32 times, interviewed about 250 people, and had contact with relatives of eight of the 11 people who were murdered that day. He also relied heavily on various news reports, including many published in the Pittsburgh Chronicle, Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle. Oppenheimer is the host of Tablet Magazine's podcast, Unorthodox, and is the author of five books, including Knocking on Heaven's Door, American Religion in the Age of Countercultural, of Counterculture, that contributed to the newest Jewish encyclopedia as well, he was the religion columnist for the New York Times from 2010 to 2016. Oppenheimer had a virtual conversation with the Chronicle to discuss the book prior to its release. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle, why did you write the book? I was always curious about Squirrel Hill. The morning of the shooting, I was at a bar mitzvah in Newton, Massachusetts with my eldest daughter. We had left our phones in the car until after lunch. We got back to our car, I opened my phone, and I had a ton of messages. Is everyone safe in Pittsburgh? Are you going to Pittsburgh? Do you know anyone in Pittsburgh? Then I looked at my news app and saw that there had been a shooting at a synagogue in Squirrel Hill. It immediately registered as the neighborhood where my father and grandfather and great-grandfather had all lived. My father was a fifth-generation Pittsburgher, and his family settled in Squirrel Hill pretty much around the time that Jews were settling there around World War, II, World War I. I felt afraid for the community. I felt a connection to the community. To be clear, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, but I knew as a historian of American religion that Squirrel Hill had a special place in the annals of American Jewish history as an extremely old, extremely stable Jewish community having been substantively Jewish for about 100 years. The irony that this terrible attack would happen to this community that has been so special to American Jewry felt like it called out to be explored more. I also got curious about how a community that has so many advantages in terms of stability, in terms of having multi-generational families, in terms of having walkability, good urban street life, local institutions, schools, synagogues, churches, shopping districts, how it would be resilient in the face of something terrible. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.